gekommen bei Sustain? Wer sind wir? Woher sind wir gekommen? Wohin gehen wir? That's right. Today we'll be talking in German because we are having our podcast at FOSS Backstage. FOSS Backstage is a wonderful conference that focuses on open source sustainability. It is held every year in Berlin. This year it happened on March 17th and 18th. It is hosted by the wonderful Plain Schwartz. And I had the opportunity of attending virtually and interviewing attendees who were there in person. We focused on software sustainability, what they hope to find in FOSS Backstage, and all the normal good stuff. So without any further ado, let's get to our guest. Hello, Anna. How are you? Hi. Good. Thanks a lot for this opportunity. No, thank you so much for being here. This is great. I'm also really excited to talk to you. For those of you who are joining and listening in live, this is the FOSS Backstage slash Sustain podcast room, I suppose, where we're having conversations about open source, software sustainability, and the future in general, just whatever comes up. Our guest today, I've never actually talked to, I don't think, in person, so I'm very excited. Ana Jimenez, I don't know how to actually pronounce her name. Could you mind pronouncing it? You, you did, Russ, just perfect. Ana Jimenez Santa Maria, it's perfect. Awesome. Ana Jimenez Santa Maria, thank you so much for joining me. You're calling from Berlin today. I've never learned your official title. I know you work for Linux Foundation. Can you go into a bit depth about what you do there? Yeah. So right now I'm working in one of the communities from the Linux Foundation that is called Jitter Group. And I'm currently the OSPO program manager there. So for those who doesn't know about Tudor Group, it's an open group of organizations focused on developing best practices and resources for open source program offices. Thank you so much. Tudor Group is the largest organization of OSPOs in general, open source program offices. It seems to be the number one place to go. If you're a corporation and you want to do open source effectively and collaborate with other people, can you talk a bit about how many members Tudor Group has, how those memberships are structured, and maybe what Tudor offers and what you offer as an OSPO manager there? So to have things more clear, I would like to say that Tudor Group, it's formed by its community members and their general members. So it's not just about the general members and the organizations that decided to support to do as general members, but we also have a huge community of contributors contributing to the resources. Everything, all the resources, all the conversations, all the networking space are open. So the community can, even though they doesn't decide to, maybe they, they are not part of our organization, but they just are involved in OSPOs and there are OSPO professionals that want to excel. They open source management skills. They can join to do, they can join the conversation. It's an open space. We have a lot of resources. Everything is in the up and the us to the group GitHub repo. And in there, we have networking spaces. We also have useful guides for those people that maybe wants to get started in to do. We even release some models and OSPO model to help new organizations to have some kind of patterns of where to go and how to map them themselves in that model. We also have like different personas. We also have courses, open courses and free courses for OSPO 101. I mean, we have a, a lot of different things. And this year also, 
we increase those resources and we are having more open spaces such as the ospology that are, we try to invite like OSPO leaders there, discuss about a certain topic and then have open discussions with the community as well as an OSPO forum where the community can have discussions and everyone can see that and have that prevalence of what they are talking about in the long term. Okay, so tons of resources. It's the best. For those of you who want to go check them out independently, to-do group, that's T-O-D-O, which is T-O-D-O group.org. Also, GitHub, it's to-do group again. I know you gave a talk at FOSS Backstage. You were part of a panel, I believe, yesterday with Claire Dillon. Claire Dillon is the executive director, if I remember correctly, for InnerSource Commons. InnerSource is something that's been championed by Denise Cooper for a while. It's the idea of taking open source practices and using them internally at your corporation. To me, this seems to be a really good pairing with to-do group, right? To-do group's about open source in general for corporations, but a lot of people who do open source also want to do it at their large company. I don't know everything going on at a large company. I would be interested to hear your perspective on InnerSource versus open source, how they're connected and how to-do interfaces with that? Like what does to-do do with InnerSource? So I would like also to share some little background story because previous joining to-do group, I was at Viterja, that it's a software development analytics firm. Viterja engaged InnerSource and OSPOS at the same time. So I knew InnerSource Commons for a long time, as well as to-do group. I knew both and I'm actively participating in both communities. And I think there is a lot of, now even this last year, a lot of connections. In fact, if you want to check the panel we did yesterday, we discussed a bit ISPO or inner source trends within OSPOS. And also today I have a talk at four. I think for the people that are watching us virtually, they can also see it, that it's about demystifying OSPOS and how inner source can bring to OSPOS. So that will be also like an extension of what we are talking today. And a curious thing I see is that, for instance, there are a lot of the to-do community members and to-do members that are also part of the inner source commons community. And recently I've heard about a lot of this question of how are there actually like OSPOs that are doing inner source within their OSPOs? And the thing is that I still seeing this trend becoming more and more important nowadays. Maybe they don't call it inner source. Maybe they just say like, yeah, we have an OSPO and one of the tasks of the OSPO is to bring open source culture within organization. So that is translated to inner source, even though they don't necessarily have to call it inner source. And the thing is that it makes sense, right? Because at the very beginning, when starting an OSPO, first, before going outside, before thinking about how to contribute and bound to open source projects, you need to teach developers and the engineering team to have an open source culture and how to be involved in the open source community. You have to drive developer education in terms of open source. Because if you don't have that first, as well as the, all the security issues that I think that comes at the same time, more or less, if you don't have that at the very beginning, then everything else that you put on top of that is not going to make sense. In the tutor group, there are a lot of 
if you check the OSPO forum, for instance, there are some questions about how can we teach developers to know how to contribute, like really simple questions such as how do we teach the developer the basics of Git and the basics of GitLab or GitHub, how to interact in this environment. So that is like super easy for someone that has been in the open source for a while, but there's a lot of people in the companies in the enterprise that, yeah, there are great developers, there are great engineers, but it's the first time with open source and they need to learn that. So I think there is a lot of connection and both communities can learn a lot each other. That is a really good point that a lot of enterprise people just don't really know how to interface with open source or may not interface with open source under a managed environment, right? Some people may be doing open source in their spare time, but how to do it productively while also meeting deadlines is a whole different question that I'm really interested in understanding that. One of the questions I have for you, as I hear you talk about intersource and to do and sort of enabling Ospos to do their best work is what does authentic and sustainable interactions with open source look like to you from a corporate perspective? The reason I ask is, is let's say a corporation is using JavaScript on their website, say they're using React or Angular or some major frameworks. That's built upon thousands and thousands of developers and developer hours going to open source. What do you think is the right way for corporations to give back? What's the ratio of giving back to the open source community? How do you do that in a good way? So I will say first, the organizations should be having like maybe some first step of saying, okay, where are the open source projects we are using? Because at that point, you need first to see what are those critical open source projects that they are using? And then say, okay, how do we want to make sure those projects are being sustainable in the long term? Because it is not just about using them. It's about caring about them and making sure they don't get lost and and they don't have like any issues in the near future because that company is working on top of them. And at some point it relies, I mean, everything that happens to that community will affect directly that organization. So open source is not just about using, it's about giving back. And OSPOS, for instance, I think they're a great place to start getting into that path of bringing open source sustainability to projects, to the projects that matters to them, because there are a lot of different activities when you engage with open source, right? So you have to make sure all the legal issues of the projects, the risk, the security vulnerabilities, and so on. You have to make sure the organization has an open source culture in place and so on. But if you put all that together, all these different activities, you put a strategy on top of them, you will get alignment and you will increase open source adoption. It's more probable to get things right, to start to build healthy relationships with the open source community, to get things right, to know how to act in the open source environment without harming the open source community. And in general terms, benefit both the organizations and the open source community. So I will say that maybe a good thing to do is think about investing. I mean, if your organization is already using open source, that it is quite probably that is happening because I think like from a recent research I read, 
almost 80% of modern applications are running on open source. So if your organization is already using it and are interacting with open source, investing in OSPOS might be a great place to have this alignment and a strategy and don't just simply use and contribute to open source ad hoc. I love that you said don't contribute to open source ad hoc because that really tees up my next question, which is at to do, do you actually help organizations coordinate their giving back to open source projects? So it's not just everyone starting from scratch saying, oh, I use these. Okay, $10,000 here by developers there. Do you ever talk between organizations to say, well, we've donated some. Can you donate another matching bit maybe to this open source project? Okay, one of our recent research, that is the evolution of OSPOS, there is a section that are the OSPO personas. So it's like OSPOS are different depending on the objective and what they want to accomplish. And based on the behavior of those OSPOS, we divide it between different personas, different archetypes. And actually, one of those archetypes are exactly what you're saying, like an OSPO that wants to, I think it's called cross-industry collaborators is what we called it. And those are real OSPOs because this research was based on testimonials and surveys from other OSPOs that were doing exactly that, like collaborating across other organizations to have that has a common goal or maybe they are contributing to the same project and it's like, yay, let's join forces and work together for the same goal. So yeah, that is a, a real use case. There's a real case that some organizations, not all of them depending on the objectives, but some organizations are, are doing that. Love that. Yeah, I'm looking at the report now. It's a great report. It's accessible from the GitHub repo. It's called an Osbo Maturity Model Featuring Case Study. So it's Evolution of the Open Source Program Office. Osbo is written by Chris Hanacek, of course, with a forward by Jim Zemlin, of course. So it's a to-do group. But what's really interesting is they mentioned right there, Bloomberg and Microsoft work together to help out TypeScript. So I love it when I see Ospos working together to help out part of the ecosystem. For me, it means that Ospos, which I often see as being very large and very corporate and maybe interested in bottom line, aren't. Maybe they're interested in more than the bottom line. They're interested in the ecosystem as a whole, which I really like because that leads towards a better future. So one of my questions going forward, or a new question I have coming off of that, is looking at to-do group right now and looking at where you want to be in three to five years. What's next? What are you most excited about making? I think it's a clear need of education. And let me go more far into this topic. So there are a lot of OSPO people that has been there in the in the industry for so many years. And they're, thanks to this networking spaces, they are helping others to pave the path and excel the open source program office skills. However, I still thinking that we need to work more on education, maybe through trainings or, and more maybe in the educational sector, like those people that just finish their careers and they want to get into open source and OSPOS. Right now, it is not quite easy to start. Like, yeah, there is a lot of documentation, but there is no clear path to follow. There is no a career path of OSPOS. That is something that at Tudo Group, we are thinking about like, hey, how can we improve that part, right? So how can we help the new generation to learn about OSPOS and not just get stuck of 
yeah, all the great OSPO leaders that runs and that are leading open source right now. Well, those OSPO leaders at some point, they will leave the industry and we need to make sure that the new generation can take the place of those leaders and become leaders as well. I like that. It's very difficult to get more people into this industry. Looking at the names at FOSS backstage, I feel like I've seen a lot of them before. And it's just kind of how it goes. I mean, a lot of them were at OspoCon, which was held in Seattle last year, which was excellent. Also by Life Foundation to, and to do group. Thank you so much for that. We do see some programs that are working towards training people to become hospital leaders. For instance, you mentioned Paterja. Whenever I hear Paterja, I think of Georg Link. When I think of Georg Link, I think of Canudas and the work at Brandeis trying to build open source community managers. I think it's the coolest idea. Let's just get people what they need to know without expecting them to have 20 years of experience in a field at 10 years old. Looking forward, one of the areas I see for education that maybe isn't being covered right now is what do you do if you're a 10 person company and you can't afford an entire OSPO? You can't afford to have someone staffed. You can't afford to have a community manager, but maybe you have three devs who are really keen on open source. Does to do group offer anything towards those mid-size OSPO or mini OSPO companies? And what is it? We have some members that have that kind of issue and well, not, it's not an issue. It's like how they structure their OSPO. Like they call them virtual OSPOs. So. They might not be like full-time employees working in open source. Their part of that time are reserved to contribute into open source. And they don't have like a physical OSPO. They have a virtual OSPO from different people, from different departments trying to build that OSPOs. So for instance, SAP, it's one of a good example. They recently served this use case in their blog. In the open, I think it's uh, SAP open source. It's the, where you can find that link. And they share like how they structure their OSPO and they have a virtual OSPO because, well, maybe they are not ready to have a, a physical space or maybe they are just fine. And things are working even with two, five or very a few developers working and not full time on that. So yeah, there, there are successful use cases that has been working for those small or medium organizations that maybe they cannot afford to have entire OSPO such as Comcast that I think they have like hundreds of people working in their OSPO team. Or maybe it's like, okay, we just want to give it a try. We want to see how is this working. We don't want to commit for entire OSPO that might cost a lot of, it might be a lot of inversion. So that is a really good place to start for those small and medium organizations. And it's something that is working. So you've talked a bit about educational resources that you're building. Tell me a bit more about what Ospology is. Sure. So that is something that started in August. I think it was the first Ospology session we did. And there are basically the monthly community meetings we have at Tudu. And it's a structure basically on three main parts. The first one, it's a short introduction about OSPO news, like what has been happening during the past month, OSPO jobs that are right now in the industry going around, like articles, important recent articles, news, and so on. And then we have a special guest that talks about a specific topic. 
For instance, in the January session, we have Amanda Kasari from Google talking about the business value of open source and OSPOS. So we will give a great presentation of that topic that is like 20 minutes, more or less. And then we leave some space for open discussions. So people can use either the OSPO forum to discuss that topic, also share their feedback in the chat. And the speaker just answers questions and we can propose like maybe from there can uh, a new initiative can raise or a new need that the community needs. So I think it's a great place first to start joining the to the community and second to learn from others. Medic Sari is the best. She is really awesome. If you haven't checked out that talk, go ahead and do so. She's also now a panelist on Sustain. So I'm looking forward to having more of her voice on the Sustain podcast. For those of you who haven't listened to that, it's where we talk about this sort of topic in the future. Ana Jimenez, we of course need to have you on. I don't know why we haven't had you yet. Let me send you an invite for that later. One of my questions now is looking at the other side of things. So it's great to come from a corporation and have an OSPO or learn how to pitch an OSPO by using your resources or learn how to collaborate with other OSPOs through to-do group, the best. What if I'm an open source practitioner? What if I am a project and I want to get money? I want to figure out how to do things. Maybe I've set up an open collective. Maybe I haven't. Maybe I know someone in an OSPO. What's the best resources like, what's the best way for me to get involved in to-do group? Does that even make sense? There is some initiative that we are trying to explore that are about mentoring. So that is for maybe like midterm. But I would love to see like how in the to-do community, like the most mature OSPO leaders can help newcomers and maybe like contributors. They don't need to be in the open source program office with their issues, their questions, and maybe connect both parties. So that is something that we're still thinking about how can this take shape? Because there is some interesting from some parties to have this. But right now, I will say that go to the OSPO forum. It's a great place to start. Like if you have any issue, if you have questions, just share it there and the community will notice and those OSPO leaders that maybe are like more mature and have a lot of knowledge in that part can help and can answer the questions and can be like the first step to get this networking happening. Also, I would say like the events are great. I mean, even though right now we didn't have a lot of them, but we are having two OSPOcons this year, one happening in North America and the other in Europe. So attending to those events are right. They're also great. This comes from Twitter Group, but also it's managed through the Linux Foundation. And there are great funding like to help people like maybe they cannot afford traveling there or they cannot join or so there are a lot of help in that part. And I would say that spaces, those spaces are also great to learn and to meet people and to share this kind of issues. Awesome. Thank you so much. What I would like to do is just point out to our guests that if you're interested in learning more about to-do, you can go to todogroup.org. You can go on GitHub to github.com slash to-do group. You can listen to Anna and follow her on Twitter at Anna, J-S, Anna. That's one N-E. So A-N-A-J-S-A-N-A, 95, 95 on Twitter, where you can learn about what to-do group is doing and also watch super awesome karaoke in Japanese. 
Ana Jiménez, muchas gracias por todo. And have a good time in Berlin. Awesome. Bye-bye. Welcome back. Our guest today is McCoy Smith. McCoy, it is great to see you. I don't think I've met you in person yet, so I'm excited to have this conversation. For those of us who don't know who you are, can you give us a short background? So I'm a lawyer. I've been fairly active in free and open source software legal matters for over 20 years. I spent a lot of time as a in-house attorney at a very large American multinational technology company, sort of running the legal function around open source. I did that until 2019. 2019, I quote unquote retired from that job, which meant I didn't stop working. I just stopped picking up a paycheck from them. And now I have my own businesses that I've set up the most notable of which is a law firm, a law firm consisting of me. And I do a lot of the same things that I did before for clients around open source, legal advice, strategy advice, et cetera. I also have a a business that I run that does sort of virtual OSPO program services for companies that are perhaps too small to set up their own OSPO. So I have my hand a lot of different pies. Most of it is just me though, doing the work. That matches with what I'm reading online. I'm looking at your <laughs> FOSS backstage profile and it says you have an MA liberal arts, an MSc, and a Juris Doctor. So this is a very educated person on the other side of the table. I try. You seem to be succeeding. So well, I'm really excited to talk to you because talking to lawyers who work at open source is always slightly different than talking to people who work at open source in just an OSPO or people who are coders. I'm thinking, of course, of you, of Richard Fontana, of Kyle Mitchell. Yep. There's like a few people out there who tend to think about open source as like, well, what does that really mean legally? And, what? Yeah. and talking to lawyers. Yeah, the funny, is, the funny thing about the lawyers that you mention is there are not a lot of us out there. And no. I know almost all of them. Yep. And I'm friends with most of them. So it's a very small community of the lawyers who really are conversant in this stuff and we sort of go to the same conferences and all know each other pretty well which is why i'm interested in talking to you so i don't know where to start i feel like it's always a longer conversation than i have the ability to like listen clearly to because it's just so technical but you have a talk going on at boss backstage which is happening today and it's called project ownership and project enforcement the rules they are a change in can you tell us a bit maybe the two-minute version of that talk i wanted to talk about Two trends that I've seen recently develop in the community of lawyers that work in open source and sort of knowledgeable technologists or business people that work in open source around two subject matters. They're primarily legal, but they touch on other things. And one is contribution policies. So if you work in any sort of open source community, you know that there are different ways in which projects handle the legal mechanisms for making a contribution. And there's been a debate that's gotten fairly robust recently around which is the best model. And I use in my presentation the acronyms CAA, CLA, and LILO, which stands for Copyright Assignment Agreement, 
contributor license agreement and license in equals license out. So basically, I go through kind of why those three models exist and the trends that have recently developed around the community feelings about which of those are good versus bad. I think you're seeing quite a lot of people tending to be not particularly excited about the copyright assignment as a mechanism for accepting contributions into projects and much more of enthusiasm for the license in, license out. I'll talk a little bit about that and why that is and kind of what it means for the future of ownership of open source projects and what that means for things like choosing and changing the license and enforcement of the licenses against people who don't follow it. The other thing I'm going to talk about is enforcement. And I think most people that work in open source know that there has been enforcement activities where lawyers have gone out against people who have failed to abide by a license and taken them to court. And that really was pioneered in Germany 15 years or so ago. There was a little bit of activity 10 years or so ago in the United States. There was some recent uptick of that in Germany again recently, which has led to, in my opinion, questions about the viability of how that is done, particularly as it relates to the contribution model. And then there's this brand new case that just got filed, what, last fall against Vizio in the United States, which I think is going to be one that many of us lawyers are going to watch because it may sort of cut a new path for how enforcement is done in the future. So I'll talk about all of that and what I think the trends are, what all of these activities mean for uh, projects. I love the use of the, of the phrase recently last fall, very different time <laughs> scale. I'm trying to think of the best questions to ask. And something that's at the top of my mind is does enforcement matter for most open source projects? I mean, it seems like licensing and lawyers doing open source licensing only really seems to matter for like large enterprises. Am I missing something? And maybe I just don't have the ability to hire a lawyer, but it just seems like you always yeah. get this very high space. I'm just curious. Right. How that's, that a, down. that's a very interesting sort of existential question, which is, is there value to enforcement at all? And I think there is enforcement where you hire a lawyer and you sue somebody and there are sort of soft enforcement mechanisms, which has always existed in the open source world and probably will continue to do so. The soft enforcement is techniques whereby certain people who don't seem to be following the rules are shunned or may not get contributions accepted or are otherwise pointed out as being bad actors. So you don't have to sue somebody to try to influence their behavior to be better. Whether or not suing as a means of enforcement is effective or not, I think you'll get a, a debate about that. Take a position on that one way or the other. As a lawyer, obviously, uh, that's one of the things that we sometimes counsel people to do if we feel like there is a problem that's not getting resolved any other way. But it's not always the best solution. 
So that does help clarify some things around enforcement. Another major question I have regarding legal matters for open source, since I have an open source expert on the phone, is proliferation of licenses is often held up as an example of how the space is changing over the past 20 years for the negative. I mean, the OSI always says that there there is a bulwark to stop proliferation of licenses. I'm curious for you whether that's even an issue or how you view it um, affecting the open source space. Yeah, this is one that I've been thinking about for over 15 years. There was a... So a 30-second answer would be great if you could know. (laughs) I'm joking. So I was on the original license proliferation committee of the OSI in like 2003, where they were like half or a third of the licenses that they now have. And it was considered a big problem that needed to be solved. Not sure it got solved. The volume of submissions of licenses to OSI, I think, has dropped off fairly significantly over the past couple of years. So maybe we've hit sort of peak license drafting. So the increase in licenses may not be a thing that we see a lot of in the future. Whether there are too many licenses now in existence it may be more of a theoretical question than an actual question yep. because as somebody who reads S-bombs a lot, you find that, you know, there are maybe 10 OSI approved licenses that pop up very frequently and the other, you know, 70 or so that are on the OSI list are very infrequently used. So you don't see them all that much. So just as a matter of practice, I think, although there are many licenses approved by OSI, a lot of those are just not used all that much. I'm glad you mentioned the word S-bonds. That's software bill of materials. And I'm probably the only person to ever say that in the world, but I am glad you used it because what's interesting is we're seeing a recent uptick in government policy. Government policy specifically targeted the cybersecurity and how do we make sure that all of our like dependencies are shored up and that our government's doing well and the Pentagon can continue to exist. And we're seeing this from the U.S. government. We're also seeing it, obviously, from the German government. And one of my questions for you is, legally, are you seeing open source being more of a liability for law than it used to be, like for legal parts of large corporations? Or are you seeing open source? Well, does it seem to be more of a liability, more of a focus on security than it used to be? And what do you think the implications are of that? First of all, when you use the term liability, usually we lawyers, our, our ears prick up because we think you're talking about getting sued. <laughs> but I would try to use technical terms. I'm not a lawyer. If you, haven't done that, so. if you mean liability to mean, I think the more conventional understanding or layman's understanding, which is something that may create a problem for you. Yes. Is open source more vulnerable to security issues than non-open source? I don't know that there's any data that would support that. That's not something that I've seen any sort of data on or studies on, but I don't think the licensing model somehow makes the software more or less vulnerable to problems in the way that it was created and the ways that it can be exploited. The SBOM has got two functions. The the government, recent government discussion of SBOMs has focused more on security. For the lawyers, the SBOM is really much more of a mechanism to understand the build that you have and the legal requirements that come with all the software in that build. 
And that's the way that we sort of sift through, okay, here's all the licenses are used. Is there a way to parse through all that information and determine, number one, are we fully compliant with all the requirements of those licenses? And number two, are there any problems created as a result of conflicts between licenses that are shown through the SBOM? Yeah. Do you think open source packages will evolve to actually have SBOMs as part of their metadata, the same way package.json is at the moment for like JavaScript packages? I think at some point that's going to be a expectation. Yeah. At least for packages that are getting integrated into products that, you know, large revenue producing entities are using. Whether somebody's hobby project that they throw up on GitHub is going to have an S-bomb on it, probably not. Yeah. But once something is important enough to enough constituencies that need to know what's in the code and what the license obligations are, I think you're going to see techniques for ensuring that that information is transmitted appropriately. I think it's a really interesting answer because it seems to imply that Ospos, which tend to be the main space that looks at open source in large corporations, talk together about their needs and their requirements, which I'm not sure is a given at the moment, but I think it will be in the future. One of my questions for you is how do you see the space maturing in that way? I mean, do you think that will happen? Do you think eventually people will get to a point where they say, well, these are the parts of the ecosystem we need to shore up and we all agree on that collectively? I was like, yeah, I think you're seeing movement in that direction already. There are a number of different initiatives like uh, Open Chain, the To Do Group, and others who represent various constituencies many of which are large companies that rely on open source to try and come up with standardized ways of communicating information both internally and externally about what you're using and what the obligations are that come with that. And I think those sorts of initiatives will continue and they'll probably be at some point either a merger of a lot of these initiatives into a single giant agreed to system or sort of a chain system that relies on a lot of these things. I know that OpenChain got ISO certification about a year or so ago. So that was sort of their mechanism to show to the industry, hey, here's something that's an accepted standard that it would be beneficial for you to advertise that you're adhering to. So I think you're going to see a lot more of that sort of stuff developing or growing as well as a more sophisticated set of tools, the more integrated tool chain, because it's, it's always, it's been an issue for a while. You know, the tool chain that can help you implement all of this stuff has been a bit disaggregated, Yeah, but at some point I think you're going to see a fully integrated tool chain that people adopt as a mechanism to sort of implement a lot of these policies and, information sharing techniques. Giving me a lot to think about. I think if I could flip the conversation over, I've been trying to think of things that are really interesting to me. I'm curious, what's most interesting to you? Maybe you've been to some talks over the past few days, maybe this morning already. What's top of your mind right now? Like what's been hitting you hard today about open source? I like to look ahead a little bit as part of my, I mean, a lot of my job is just general advice and consulting with people on 
the typical problems that most people have. But I, I like to look ahead. I think on the enforcement end, it'll be interesting to see what happens in this case in the United States on enforcement from users versus contributors, where that goes. I think there are some implications of that case, depending on how it goes down, that people maybe are not thinking about. I'm a, by training a patent lawyer. And one area that I think that there has been a lot of Sturm und Drang for many years over patents and open source, but not a lot more than that that has been done around patents. And I'm curious whether at some point, you know, we saw this lawsuit against Gnome a couple of years ago that I thought sort of indicated that this, the, the Sturm und Drang is now turned into actual action. Whether that's the case or not, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in some techniques that may be used to address that. And I write on this a little bit and I will be writing soon about that a little bit more. So that's another area where I think we may see some interesting developments over the next couple of years. We had Josh Montgomery on the Sustain podcast to talk about the patent trolls. He wrote a whole book about patent trolls, which was animated and quite silly to read about how they can hurt open source companies and companies in general. I was reading Kyle Mitchell's blog last night. Couldn't sleep. Don't know why that was my reading material, but it was. And well, don't tell Kyle you're trying to use it to go to sleep. It was actually ineffective at that. Kyle knows that I weirdly like his blog. I don't know why I do that, mm -hmm. but I do. But one of the things that he pointed out was that the OSI's like 10 principles for what an open source license is doesn't say anything about patents. And I'm curious yes. what you think about that. As someone who's already been part of that process of being in the OSI as a legal advisor. Person. Yeah, so I have argued that there is an unwritten rule in the OSI now that says any new license has to address patents. Interesting. And I think they generally have kind of backhanded enforced that for the past at least five years. Of course, I'm somebody who thinks that the OSI probably ought to refresh its rules mm. for patent approvals. And I have advocated for that for, again, several years. I actually ran for the OSI board on a platform specifically related to that. Yeah. I lost, so clearly there, <laughs> nobody agreed with me or not enough people agreed with me on that. But there are many, in my opinion, unwritten rules. Yep. In the OSI approval process, which frankly, I think should be written down if you're going to enforce them. But addressing appropriately patents is, I think, one of those unwritten rules. Yeah. It's so interesting for me because of the naive view that I hear a lot of developers say that like open source means the OSI and then using the OSI as like it as a single entity with a single voice and a single view, which isn't necessarily the case. That's an interesting attitude. And Unfortunately, it has been used in a way that a lot of people find objectionable mm. when people come in with what are oftentimes referred to as open source licenses, yeah. so sort of, but not completely yeah. open source. Yep. And when, for example, they either don't submit it to the OSI for approval or they get rejected from the OSI, they say, oh, the OSI is not the single entity that can tell me whether or not I'm open source or not. I think I'm open source. Who are you to tell me I'm not? And yep. so you get in these sort of debates. So I wasn't advocating I, for that. I know. No, no, no. I know that's a thing. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> I understand that. I think most people think that the OSI is a good steward 
not only of what is and isn't open source, but in general does try to do a reasonably good job of taking a look at licenses and making sure that they're not just bad. As somebody who's been on that mailing list for license approval, you know, probably at least 50% of the licenses that people submit to that are just bad. And <laughs> then the lawyers leap in. I be yep. one of the most vocal ones and say, this is a bad license and hear all the drafting problems with it. And a lot of times that's enough for the, the license either to get not approved by the OSI or for, or for the author to turn tail and run away. Well, I'm grateful for the work that you do there. I'm grateful that there are vocal advocates for proper licensing and for the OSI and that you involve yourself by, say, running for the board. I hope you do so again. I do think we do need a patents clause somewhere in the OSI definitions as well. This has been fascinating to talk to you. I always really enjoy talking to the lawyers in open source. I'm aware that you are on Twitter at McCoy Smith. It's two C's, M-C-C-O-Y Smith. Is there any other link that you would like to drop? Oh, also, obviously, lexpan.law. That is one of your yes. companies. I talk on Twitter quite a bit, although probably only about 30% of it is uh, related to uh, open source. I do a lot of patent stuff, patent nerd stuff. I also do a lot of soccer or football stuff. Lexpanlaw is my Twitter handle for my legal business. So that one is much more sort of the professional face and really only talks about legal issues that I think are interesting to the people who follow that business. I'm on LinkedIn and, and things like that, but that's about at the extent of my public presence on these sorts of issues. That's okay. I just wanted to give a shout out to that. Also shout out yes. to Millwall, the best football team in the world. Don't know why that's my fan base, but it is. Wearing my one of my team's logos here on my sweatshirt. Although if you're listening to a podcast, you can't see it. McCoy, it's been great having you on. Thank you so much and take care. Thank you. Nice talking to you. All right. I really hope you enjoyed that. Once again, this has been a Sustain slash Foss backstage interview. If you're interested in talking more about these subjects, you can always check us out on Discourse at discourse.sustainoss.org. That is our website. We have a whole forum. We're just waiting to hear from you. We're also curious about your thoughts in general. So feel free to send us an email at podcast at sustainoss.org or on Twitter at sustainoss. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you take care. 